Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. It's been 10 years since the Arab Spring, the revolutionary movement that swept through the Middle East and brought down the dictatorial governments in Egypt and Tunisia. For a brief time, the masses were victorious before being pushed back by the forces of counter-revolution. As we enter a new period of uprisings and revolutions, we should look back on what lessons can be learned from the movements of the past. Comrade Lane gives this talk on 10 years since the Arab Spring. Sidi Bouzid uh, is a small town in Tunisia. Uh, now this city in um, 2011 had an unemployment rate of around 30%. Uh, that's quite high, right? But unfortunately, the situation uh, has been and still is like that for in much of the Middle East for, for quite a while. Uh, there are generally high rates of poverty, uh, unemployment, and widespread suffering uh, for the working masses in the Middle East. You know, in, in a poor country like Tunisia, right? So on the morning of December 17th, 2010, uh, a young man named Mohamed Bouazizi, uh, he started his workday as a street vendor in this city. Now, 30% of people are unemployed. They have to try and find a way to scrape by, right? Lots of people will sell cigarettes, food, produce, uh, any kind of commodity that, that will sell on the streets. Uh, as a way to, to try and feed themselves and feed their families. And, and that's how they make their living, large groups of street vendors. And, and life for people in the Middle East can be very, fairly uh, precarious, but, but it is particularly so for street vendors. Uh, they're often subject to harassment and abuse by the state, right? So whether it's, it's the police who, who knock them, their carts over, uh, who take their produce, who confiscate their items, um, and, and beat them up, actually physically abuse them, or, or whether it's just the, the bureaucratic machine that, that finds them, that confiscates their products, uh, denies them permits, or, and really ignores them when they need help. So, so two hours into Mohamed Bouazizi's workday, he was targeted by police, like, like he had been many times before. Now, Mohamed had no money to actually bribe the police. Uh, he had actually gone $200 into debt the previous day in order to supply his cart with produce the night before and so with no money to bribe the police they confiscated his produce they confiscated his cart and they confiscated his scales just like they had done before and they also physically accosted him just like had happened previously now buazizi was obviously angered uh you know by this by this confrontation quite humiliated uh it was very public right right in the street many people saw and so i imagine seeing red he went to the governor's office uh, the governor's building to try and complain, try and potentially get his cart back, get his scales, uh, file a formal complaint against against the police who accosted him. But when he got there, it became clear that nobody would see him, actually, that nobody was going to listen to him, nobody would help him, and that he was on his own. Now, for, for Mohammed, the events of that morning were the last straw, the very last straw. All, all the shame, the torment, the misery, the poverty that he and he had endured up until that point it pushed him into a breaking point. And so he walked to the nearest gas station, uh, he acquired a container, filled it with gasoline, and then he walked back to that same governor's office uh, and he committed suicide there by lighting, lighting himself on fire. Now, the next few weeks would show that a lot of working people in Tunisia and actually throughout the Middle East were, were reaching a similar breaking point uh, as Mohammed. And you had protests 
Actually, at first breaking out in Sidi Bouzid, uh, angry with the government, right? angry that this, that this could happen, that the government would allow this, that there was nobody who would listen to him, that nobody would help him, um, and, and you know, that he would be pushed to self-immolation by the situation. But in a short period of time, the protests uh, would begin to spread you know, to, to different cities uh, and actually broaden in their scope. Uh, broaden in their demands, you know, not just justice for Mohammed, but actually demanding an end to hunger, an end to police repression, uh, demanding democratic rights, uh, and demanding an end to a rising cost of living. Now, the government of Tunisia first reacted to these protests with batons, right, with, with repression. They wanted to crush it with force. Uh, but instead of scaring the masses into submission, uh, they actually had the opposite effect. Instead of fear, actually, uh, the, they, they were faced with anger. The police only made the masses angrier, uh, and they, were, they failed in their goal to actually contain the movement, to contain the protesters. The government actually deployed the military to, to different cities throughout the country, uh, but it did not use the military in an attempt to crush the movement, uh, because, frankly, they could not use it. They were scared that, that if they tried, uh, that, that if they tried to get the military to drown the movement in blood, uh, that the military would have been broken into pieces, that, that it would have been split uh, you know, into, into groups for the regime, against the regime, you know, potentially a passive group, a demoralized group, and that it would have been lost as, as a tool uh, for the state. They would have lost control of it. And finally, the Tunisian working class launched a wave of strikes, which culminated into a general strike, uh, that forced the president of Tunisia, Ben Ali, to flee to Saudi Arabia. Now, this is the first major victory of the, of the Arab Revolution, the period of 2011 to 2014. Uh, and, and the political situation in the entire region began to explode to that point. Now, Tunisia was supposed to be the most stable uh, Arab country. Its economy had higher rates of foreign investment. Uh, it was generally on a better economic footing than its neighbors. Um, you know, politically on the surface, things looked stable. The, the president, Ben Ali, had been in power for 24 long years, but it only took the masses 28 days to get rid of him, actually, and spark the Arab Revolution. That stumps the talking heads on CNN, you know, the expert political commentators. They, they, they couldn't understand you know, how or why this had happened. And often, you know, these people are Anderson Cooper, I, I don't watch cable TV, so I, I don't know the names of the, the commentators on you know, the, the main network channels. They, these people, they tend to look at politics um, empirically. Uh, they really see things on the surface. Right? They, they don't understand that there are deeper processes taking place, you know, that you can scratch the surface and, and there are events hiding below. Uh, and in order to understand the Arab Spring, and actually revolution generally, I think we need to understand what Leon Trotsky, uh, the Russian revolutionary, described as, as the molecular process of revolution. Because beneath the, the surface of calm, beneath an, an apparent surface of tranquility, uh, there, there can be a silent accumulation of bitterness, anger, frustration, uh, despair, and that was what had happened in the previous period throughout the Middle East. And, and all of a sudden, things had bubbled over. And in a way, Mohammed Bouazizi is a figure similar to, to George Floyd, maybe, 
actually, right? It's not just the death of one individual, uh, right? But it's actually the years of anger, the years of resentment, of poverty, of police terror. It's, it's hundreds of Bouazizis and hundreds of George Floyds uh, that take their toll until the masses decide that they've actually had enough, that they can't live like this anymore, and that they're going to grab the baton and that they're going to hit back. It's, it's, that's why it's described as the molecular process of revolution, right? We have small accumulations, uh, small changes, small events, small shifts in consciousness uh, that eventually lead to an accumulation uh, and a phase transition, a big shift um, and a revolution. Now, after the protests broke out in Tunisia, it became quite clear that the, the working masses throughout the Middle East were also ready to hit the streets. Right. Tunisia acted as a, as a catalyst for the Arab Revolution. They showed uh, that you know, it was possible uh, to, to fight back and to win, uh, and it inspired uh, them to do so. And so protests broke out based on uh, a number of factors and demands. Uh, high unemployment, falling living standards, hatred towards a corrupt and repressive government, um, democratic rights. Uh, a lot of demands were quite similar across the continent. I think you could... Uh, if, if you wanted to condense them all, you could talk about bread, freedom, and social justice. Uh, and, and this showed the, the pressures that affect uh, Tunisian society were, were much of the same pressures that also affected Egyptian society, right? or, or Libyan society, or Syrian society. It protests broke out in Egypt uh, on January 25th in 2011. Uh, it ran for 18 days until the fall of Mubarak's government, and then ran for another. And then that process continued for another three years, but. After the beginning of protests in Egypt, the very next day, protests broke out in Syria uh, when a police officer assaulted a man in public. Once again, you have police repression uh, and, and the question of, of democracy uh, and, and the repressive state. In Libya, anti-government protests broke out uh, on the 15th of, of February in 2011. And protests, big and small, uh, went as far as Morocco, Sudan, or Iraq, Djibouti, Yemen, Bahrain, Oman, and even Israel, it shows that actually revolution does not respect borders. Actually, it's an international phenomenon. Just as, as capitalism is an international thing, so is revolution. Uh, and I want to talk briefly about Israel for a moment. Uh, in July of 2011, just a few months uh, after the outbreak of the uh, Arab Spring, hundreds of thousands of people in Israel uh, were, were protesting against the rising cost of living, against poverty, against privatization uh, and for social justice. Actually, that was really the rallying cry of their movement, is that people demand social justice. And opinion polls showed that 90% of Israelis supported the movement. And I wanted to talk about this because much of the left writes off the Israeli working class as a progressive force. Uh, but I think this is a complete mistake. In 2011, they chanted Mubarak, Assad, Bibi, Netanyahu, uh, basically, naming their own prime minister next to these overthrown Arab dictators, right? And this proves that, that the Israeli working class actually identified with the Arab masses. They, they feel the same pressures uh, as, as them, right? They work long hours, they deal with high costs, high rents, uh, and the, the general squeeze and grind of capitalist society. It banners in Tel Aviv, which said that Egypt is here. And another, uh, this said, walk like an Egyptian. I uh, imagine that was a Bengals fan uh, with that banner. Uh, and a general strike of 500,000 people in February of 2012 in Israel. And this shows that capitalism 
it creates a, a generalized you know, experience uh, for, for people of the same class in different countries. Of course, there, there's, there are regional um, you know, differences, subtle and larger differences between different countries. Uh, but in general, working people feel squeezed, right? Squeezed on all sides, from the landlord to their boss, uh, to, to the high cost of food, etc. Now, Egypt uh, was the key country in the Arab Spring, and I think it is still the key country uh, for the Arab Revolution or for revolution in the Middle East. The, the country has always uh, been of strategic importance uh, in the region. It's, it, it's the largest Arabic-speaking country in the world, and it also has the largest working class in the Middle East. Now, from 2011 to 2014, the Egyptian masses overthrew five rulers and two governments. And, and events would show the, the heroism of the masses. Right? The, the Egyptian state is and was enormous, like, like large uh, in composition, like it's a lot of people, uh, especially when we, we discuss like the security forces, the, the police, the army, the military, uh, riot squads, right? This is hundreds of thousands of people. It's quite large in proportion to the size of the population. Uh, but when the masses entered into, into the struggle, into the streets, they actually heroically were able to sweep aside uh, the, you know, all of these security forces. They endured the batons, they, they braved the rubber bullets uh, and the tear gas, and, and they moved right past them. And once again, in the, in the, first, in the beginning phases of the 2011 Egyptian revolution, the Mubarak regime, uh, in the, when overthrowing the Mubarak regime, uh, the masses occupied Tahrir Square, this, this, key, um, this key location in the capital. The regime sent in the army hoping that they could simply like crack some skulls and enforce a curfew, uh, that all of the protesters would go home and that everything would be good. Uh, but unfortunately for the regime, the soldiers began to fraternize with the masses, began to, to enter into discussions with them and, and speak with them, um, and, and began to question whether or not they should, they should really be cracking the skulls of their, of their fellow, um, you know, fellow workers, uh, fellow, fellow poor uh, people out on the streets. The Egyptian army, um, much, much like every army uh, of every country, it, it's a reflection of the society that it comes from. At the at the very top, you have you know, the generals, uh, you know the high-ranking officers. These types of people they, they often come from influential families, rich families, um, you know people with with education, with influence, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, the the middle ranks of the officer corps are drawn from the middle class, and the lowest ranks, the rank and file, the most numerous, comes from the working class and the poorest sections of society. Uh, in Egypt, the, the army is made up of conscripts, so, so we know this to be true, right? that, that it is actually forcibly drawn uh, from, from the general population. Um, and, and each of these groups is, is, is subject to the pressures that, that exist in society, right? And depending on their class background, they can be subject to, to different pressures in, uh, in, in a more potent way. Now, the, this massive apparatus, uh, this massive security apparatus, right? The, this, the military, the state, all of these things. It was something which seemed completely impenetrable, uh, but it was once again rendered impotent in a matter of weeks in the Egyptian revolution. All, all the NGOs, all the, all the missionaries, all the bleeding heart liberals, you know, they spent decades trying to, to lobby for, for economic relief and politely ask for democratic rights uh, from Mubarak. They never achieved a damn thing. They never went, they never conquered an inch against, uh, against the Egyptian regime. But the masses, once entering the streets, were able to end 
uh, Mubarak uh, and his reign in 18 days. That is all it took, 18 days. Now, one thing I think that we need to know about revolution uh, is, is about the state. Now, Holly spoke about the state quite well in the previous session. Uh, so I think I'll limit it to, to the state in particular. Um, in, or sorry, this is a state in Egypt or, or in poorer countries, like, like much of the countries we're discussing today in particular. In Canada, there's this idea in the popular consciousness that, like, you know, the state is it's something that represents society, right? The parliament is is the people's house, uh, it, and it rule the prime minister rules for all of Canada, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, I've even heard trade union leaders and left wing MPs uh, repeat this. Um, but I think they're wrong, right? Uh, good things don't happen in Parliament, actually. Bad things, very bad things happen uh, in that building. And just like in Canada, uh, Egypt, uh, Syria, etc., the state is a class state. It, it doesn't represent all of society. It represents the ruling class. It represents a portion of society, the most powerful layer, the people who control uh, the banks, the, the, uh, the lands, the factories, the businesses, uh, and the entire economy. The state enforces um, privatization, right? It cracks down on dissent, on protests. Uh, it does nothing to help the helpless, it, the unemployed, um, you know, the, the people in poverty, that sort of thing. Uh, it's, it's a committee for controlling the affairs of the ruling class. That being said, the ruling class is quite a small class numerically, like, you know, less than uh, like 10,000 people, depending on the country. Right? This is the amount of people who actually own a significant amount of wealth uh, and who don't have to work. Uh, and so the working class could, and the poor could very easily overrun uh, the ruling class. So in order to actually continue ruling, the ruling class needs to actually try to, to maintain some sort of democratic veneer. Uh, you know, it needs to kind of give the impression that it actually does rule in, all, rule in the interests of all society, even though it absolutely doesn't. And so what it does is it curbs the excess of the most backwards layers of the ruling class, uh, and it tries to moderate the antagonisms between the rich and the poor. It tries to moderate the exploitation. Right? So whether it's uh, labor standards and regulations, um, environmental regulations, housing regulations or, or programs, uh, whatever, it, it tries to prevent these outbreaks these, of, of raw class anger and revolt. Now, in a rich country like Canada, the, the democratic veneer, it, it's much thicker. Uh, I mean, you could, you could basically call it plywood in comparison to, to other countries, right? The ruling, uh, the ruling class, like capitalism uh, is fairly rich in Canada. The ruling class employs quite a lot of people. Uh, unemployment ranges between 5 and 15%. The state has a considerable amount of revenue, and they can afford to fund uh, more social programs, which, which lessen yeah, at least a little bit, the worst of the poverty and the hunger that comes with capitalist society. But in the poorest countries in the world, in, in poor countries like Egypt and, and Tunisia, and Syria and Libya, the ruling class cannot afford a democratic veneer. You know, if Canada had, had a piece of plywood, uh, the ruling class of Egypt would, would have cellophane, you know, a plastic wrap. Uh, maybe there's a glare, right, to, to hide the naked exploitation, uh, you know, that, that exists behind it. If 30% of people are unemployed, in order for the ruling class to, to maintain their profits, 
um, you know, and, and you know, not help those 30 percent. Uh, a portion of that 30 percent will, will have to starve. And so the, the exploitation is a lot more naked. Right? Here we see the, the cleavage of capitalist society with, with things like the COVID outbreak in Cargill. Right. That was that was completely ridiculous and upsetting. We saw Nick, uh, you know, the cleavage of the exploitation that exists in Canadian capitalism. But capitalism in the Arab countries and the rest of the third third world really does not have very many clothes whatsoever. Democracy is something that is quite expensive uh, and, and not politically expensive, monetarily expensive. And Egyptian capitalism, Tunisian capitalism, uh, these countries, they, they cannot afford it. And so th this is partially why we see a tendency towards corruption in these countries, right? The state can't pay to uh, pay its officials and its employees enough. It can't afford the, the bookkeeping and the security of state resources to overcome the, e the general economic pressure of the situation. There's, there's an example from Pemex, the Mexican um, state oil company. Uh, now, in Mexico, actually, fuel pirating is, is quite rampant. People will... Uh, you know, take basically like open a valve on a pipeline, take gasoline, put it in a barrel and then go sell it on the black market. Uh, and so the, the Mexican government actually hired people to, to keep track and monitor the pipeline and make sure that nobody's actually stealing the fuel. Uh, but the economic situation weighs even on, the, on these people who are supposed to be monitoring it. Uh, and, and they can be subject to bribes quite easily. If, if they themselves are poor, uh, why wouldn't they take the bribe? And so the Mexican government tried to actually hire monitors to monitor the people who are monitoring the pipeline. And the monitors of the monitors got bribes. And then it went down like five or six times. And, and the sixth monitor of the monitor of the monitor of the monitor of the pipeline was also bribed and fuel pirating continued. This is the kind of situation in a lot of these countries, right? So with, with no democratic veneer, uh, repression and terror uh, are, are quite important for the, for the state to actually continue, uh, continue to maintain order. Yeah, that's 30% of unemployed people. Uh, that's going to require a lot. That's that's 30% of, of people who, who are likely to be hungry or who are probably going to be stealing bread. Um, and, and that's going to require a lot more policing to maintain order and to maintain profits. Uh, more police, more batons, and more brutality. And these are things which, which are part of capitalism, right? In order to keep the prof profits flowing, in order to maintain private property, uh, th this is how it needs to be you know, for capitalism in the poor countries. Now, the fundamental problem of the, of the Arab Revolution is that nowhere did the masses uh, go far enough in, in terms of taking control of the regime, of the government, of the state, or of the economy. And unfortunately, this was the pivotal mistake. Each time the revolution in various countries rose up uh, and deposed the leader, I'll use Egypt as an example uh, because they overthrew some five, you know, Mubarak, Sharaf, uh, Morsi. Uh, unfortunately, they never fundamentally ended uh, the regime. Uh, you see, the, the, the state is something uh, which is far more than, than just like individuals and, and figureheads, right? The state of, in Canada is, is more than Trudeau. Uh, behind these people, there are thousands and thousands of unelected bureaucrats who pull strings behind the scene, who have their own jobs, um, you know, who, who serve a certain function. Uh, some people like to describe this uh, as, as the deep state. Uh, I've never been a huge fan of that term. But, but you know, you have consultants, uh, advisors, uh, people who have their own way of doing things, their own essentially culture, and, and to a certain extent, their own interests that, that exist within the state. 
So it's not sufficient to, to simply replace the person at the top. It's quite easy for the ruling class to, to replace one individual, right? to find another Mubarak, to find another Ben Ali, to find somebody to, to be the face. Right? The masses in a revolution need to control, take control of state power uh, firmly within their hands, remove the generals, remove the advisors, remove the ministers, you know, all of these criminals uh, in order to fundamentally alter the country. And for us, what we want is actually for the working class to abolish the existing state in the capitalist countries, right? To create its own state, a state for working people, uh, a state where these, these bureaucrats and these functionaries actually have no place whatsoever. And in the early stages of a revolution, uh, it's quite normal for, for the movement to, to begin like a, in a very heterogeneous way. It is composed of, of various layers uh, in various classes, uh, with, even with different interests, right? It's, it's not just workers. Um, that took part within the Arab Spring, but, but it was also shopkeepers, right? small business owners, artists, intellectuals, and street vendors. But, but the key group that, that does have the power to fundamentally change society, uh, to fundamentally accomplish the goals of the Arab Spring, is the working class. The working class runs production, and therefore it is the only group that could actually take control of the economy. And so we saw the Egyptian workers uh, achieve quite a high level of class consciousness at, at each stage of the revolution. As things escalated, the consciousness seemed to grow. One particularly inspiring example, actually, was the class solidarity between Christians and Muslims in Egypt. Uh, there, there were various slogans that came out that demonstrated this. Uh, Muslims and Christians are one hand. You know, this cuts across the, the sectarian divide that had been promoted by the Egyptian ruling class for, for hundreds of years. And, and Muslims defended Christians from, from state security uh, and fundamentalist militias, and, and then vice versa, Christians defended Muslims. Uh, but unfortunately, all, all of the major leaders of the revolution, uh, and especially leaders of the, the working class had in Egypt, had no conception uh, of, of a path of a working class revolution, uh, of a path where the working class takes control of society for its aims. I have a few examples. There's Abu Eta. Is the leader of a major trade union federation um, of 24 general unions, which boasted a membership of 1.4 million workers. Uh, now, Abu believed that workers' political and economic uh, struggles should be kept separately, which, in my opinion, is complete nonsense. And the trade union uh, tops they they would use arguments you know, like they, they would they would say things like workers have have no interest in politics. Um, now, in this period, I find this totally unbelievable considering that that it would have to have been a significant a number of work a significant amount of workers uh, who had just or were in the process of overthrowing the government and i'm not sure how that could not be uh, an interest of, in politics but even if this was true the role of the leadership of the working class is to convince them to fight for their own interests right to fight for their economic and their political interests and in this case in a period of revolution, it would have been to fight for a working class politi uh, political option, a party um, you know, that, that really represented the interests and advocated for the working class. But unfortunately, these types, uh, reformist leaders, the uh, trade unions tops, they, they weren't very close to the ruling class, or sorry, to the working class. They, they, they were likely closer to the ruling class, uh, and they had no faith in the working class. Uh, so they never made any effort to, to link you know, the thousands of workers in their particular struggles in their workplace um, you know, or, or their, their political aspirations to, to a generalized struggle for political power.
None of the leaders had this conception. There, there's another man uh, known as the candidate of Tahrir Square, Hamdin uh, Sabahi. Um, he came into the revolution with an enormous amount of political authority. He, he, he was really he was a left-wing politician already uh, who was fairly well-known. And he ran in the, the presidential election of 2012 uh, on a, a fairly good program, actually. Um, he called for, it, it was essentially a workers' program, calling for nationalizations, calling for a higher minimum wage, going for a maximum wage, uh, and, and a wealth tax uh, on the 1% of the richest Egyptians. Now, he won the vote in, in Cairo, in Alexandria, in Luxor, in Sinai, in every industrial center, uh, in the Delta, in, in the Canal, uh, canal regions. Uh, and he actually should have won that election. But the state is a class state. Right? The state is a committee for controlling the affairs of the ruling class. Uh, and the ruling class tinkered with the vote uh, and essentially rigged it to make sure that their preferred candidate, Shafiq, was actually kept in the running. Now, Sabahi actually rightly called for a boycott uh, of the election after afterwards, uh, which, which is correct. Right. If, if it is an undemocratic election, why should we participate? We should build our own options. Uh, but instead of actually using using his authority, uh, using you know, his platforms to actually mobilize uh, the masses, you know, mobilize the workers and, and fight for a different option. Um, he refused, actually, uh, because this would be undemocratic in his words. In the key moment, he actually backed down. And ultimately, he failed to turn any of the momentum or support uh, that, that was behind him into, into a, a mass political organization for the working class uh, or into, into anything, really. And within six months, both of these individuals uh, that, that I've talked about, as well as many other leaders uh, in the workers' movement, actually, um, they, they joined a, like a popular coalition uh, to form an opposition against the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, at this time, uh, I haven't explained the Muslim Brotherhood very much, um, but I, I'll, I'll just limit it to say that, that it's, it's very true that the Muslim Brotherhood in, in 2012 was, was hated uh, by, by many aspects of society. Most of them, most of society wanted the Muslim Brotherhood gone uh, and they had no base, you know, really. Uh, the, the working class wanted them gone and actually a pretty significant section of the ruling class also wanted them gone. Uh, so the interests of the working class, of, the, of these two classes, which, which generally are, are completely in opposition, actually converged for a very brief moment in time. But by avoiding the formation of, of an independent class option, uh, the, the workers' leaders were digging the grave of the revolution, unfortunately. They're kind of building illusions uh, that you know, the, the movement could be channeled into, into parliamentary lines. Right. Uh, the, that's, you know, they're, they're diverting it into a channel that's fairly safe for the ruling class to the parliamentary arena. I guess you could say the ruling class feels very safe there when they should have been on the streets. And at every critical juncture uh, of the revolution, the trade union tops, the liberal oppositionists and the reformist leaders are constantly trying to hold back the movement and refusing to build an organized re revolutionary movement. And eventually, Sabahi endorsed the dictatorship of Sisi, who is the, basically the man who came out the other end of the Egyptian revolution uh, and who is still in power today. Uh, similarly, Abu Eta actually accepted a position uh, in Sisi's government as minister of labor and then proceeded to turn the other cheek uh, when strikes were repressed by the state and, and workers' organizations were repressed. 
And so, so these people, um, these reformists, these workers' leaders, trade union tops, they, they, they accepted you know, the boundaries and the, and the rules you know, set out by the system, right? set out by capitalism and set out by the ruling class, really. And because they accepted them, they, they had to follow them. They had to follow the rules. And Abu Eta and Sabahi, they, these, are, these are just a few of the rulers who were swallowed by the, by the ruling class in the course of the revolution. Now, there were certain tendencies uh, in the revolution that, that had this notion that um, you know, the movement should you know, get democracy and then fight for other aims, right? I implying that basically once, once a formal democracy, once, once a parliamentary system was won, uh, that that would make winning higher wages, um, winning more democratic rights, winning economic relief, these types of things more achievable. Uh, but unfortunately, I think uh, that the past 10 years has shown that this is not a productive way actually to go about things. Egyptian capitalism cannot afford democracy. Uh, never mind economic relief. In order to actually achieve bread and freedom, the workers have to take control of their own fates. They have to take control of the economy and the state. It isn't one before the other. Uh, bread and freedom are two things that are inextricably linked. Now, in Tunisia, when, when Ben Ali, um, you know, the former dictator of, of Tunisia, when he fled the country, the, there was a vacuum of power that, that had to be filled. Um, and it was in the early period, filled by, by revolutionary committees, um, often controlled by the trade unions. Uh, they took power at, at local and in some places regional levels. At the Red Aev, um Phosphate Mining Basin, there was no authority other than the trade unions. The police station was burnt down, the judge had fled, and the town hall was taken over by the local union, and they, they made it their headquarters. They had mass meetings that were taking place in the main square, um, and, and people had, and they had set up actually committees in order to deal with transport, to deal with public order, to deal with local services. Uh, and basically like the, a, the, an embryo, a very local embryo uh, of state power. Um, we, now we saw this at a local level, um, the working class beginning to actually take the reins of society into their hands. But through the course of the Arab Revolution, uh, unfortunately, they never had the chance uh, to, to realize uh, their full potential, to realize this opportunity, uh, because there was no point of reference. There was no revolutionary leadership that actually guided the way forward, that actually said that they needed to form more of these revolutionary committees, link up, and actually give them a national scope. And without a revolutionary leadership, without a, a point of direction, um, even the most revolutionary, the most energetic movement in the world can dissipate. You see, the, rev the revolution knows what it doesn't want, uh, but often it doesn't know what it does want. I'm, I'm going to repeat that because that's a mouthful. The revolution knows what it does not want, but often the revolution doesn't know what it does want. But it doesn't know how to achieve its aims and where to direct its energy. And the masses cannot struggle forever. Uh, a comrade once said to me, Islam can make you fast for a month, but it can't make you fast for a year. It it's simply not possible. And so with no forward progress, uh, after a period, passivity and demoralization did begin to set in and the masses were demobilized. Now, for, for the liberal media, the Arab Spring begins and ends at the question of democracy, right? Of course, millions of people taking to the streets um, and fighting the police state in order to carry out their collective demands, it, it's a very democratic act, in my opinion. 
But in order to, to win and to keep democratic rights, you know, freedom of expression, police, political accountability, freedom of the press, capitalism needs to be abolished in the Middle East. In Egypt, the, the initial demands of the 2011 revolution were all conceded by the re regime within a year. But the regime had time to consolidate its rule over the past 10 years. And you know, today, I, the masses, they still find themselves with missing a lot of the same democratic rights. Egypt is not a democracy. The Sisi regime, uh, the dictatorship that exists now, uh, has really spent the last period doing everything it can to suppress political dissidents, uh, as well as you know, journalists and publishers. Uh, Syria and Libya have spent much of the last decade in, in civil war. And Tunisia is the only country, actually, that, that claims to have achieved a formal democracy, uh, but we will see how long that lasts. And 10 years later, the, the causes of the Arab Spring are still quite present, and, and none of the fundamental antagonisms have been solved. Now, I think it's imperative to study the lessons of the Arab Spring. This is one of the most important revolutionary waves, significant revolutionary waves in recent memory. Uh, and it contains a lot of lessons, even for us in Alberta, because the antagonisms that sparked the Arab Spring are really not all that different uh, from the ones that exist here. We, we have poverty amidst plenty, right? In the, in the Arab countries, you have very rich capitalists who are getting wealthy off of the backs of working people. And the same is true here. I, if you ever find yourself in Edmonton, I recommend you go to 101st Street and 106th Ave, because if you look south, You'll see a millionaire's playground in Rogers Place. You'll see enormous skyscrapers, probably an expensive sports car, people in very expensive suits going into the field law, law office, or maybe the CEO of Enbridge or something like that. But if you look north, you, you'll see hopelessness. You'll see poverty. You'll see suffering. Uh, you'll see, you know, Boyle Street Community Services, and you'll see the Hope Mission, uh, a couple of homeless shelters. Uh, and this is the same capitalism that exists. Uh, of course, you know, there, there are differences, uh, but fundamentally it is the same capitalism and the same antagonisms that exist in the Arab world. And so these lessons need to be understood, I think, by anybody who is serious about having a revolution today, even in Canada. The primary lesson is that there is a need for revolutionary leadership, right? That we do need to build a revolutionary international that is ready to be the point of reference in a period of, uh, of outbreak of class anger. Right? We need to be prepared for the next Arab revolution, as well as the Canadian revolution, or revolution anywhere on the globe, on the globe to make sure that the working class wins. Tatiana? Uh, Justin, on this point of um, you know, the soldiers not, not firing on, on protesters, the, this is quite interesting, and it's quite um, characteristic of many revolutions. Actually, if the soldier, if soldiers, you know, throughout all of history were extremely disciplined, um, you know, always took orders, revolution would be more or less impossible. Um, but but that's not the case, um, and the reason why is because you know, like I said in the lead author, right, the soldiers feel pressure, pressures that exist in society, and, and a revolution uh, contains quite a lot of pressure. I, it's it's something that's it, it's not just infectious; it's it's intoxicating. Actually, a mass movement is intoxicating. You can get drunk on the on the vibe, if you know what I mean. Um, people can get swept up in the course of events, um, and we we saw a little bit of this actually in the Black Lives Matter movement that took place last year. Uh, if you remember, when the National Guard was was called in by Trump to to basically to 
crack skulls, you know, and, and put some of these protests down. Uh, but they were very hesitant to use it. And um, actually, at the end of the day, Trump had to had to walk back a little bit, right? Uh, especially in Portland with the National Guard, because you could see the, there were there were National Guards, National Guardsmen like, in the in the movement, like in these protests, standing there uh, at certain points, like actually chanting the chants of the crowd. There's a, a video that stuck in my head uh, where there's a black soldier standing in front of the, the large protests and the chant is I'm black and I'm proud. And you can see this soldier, he's got one tear coming from one of his eye and he's chanting and he's kind of shaking his head. I'm black and I'm proud. Like he knows he shouldn't be there. He knows that he should be on the other side. Uh, and there's a very, very real danger. Uh, that's that of course that, you know, the national guard that the army would fracture into its constituent parts. If it, if things did come to a head, right. And then at that point, uh, it really would be the revolution would be yeah. very high stakes. Right? Um, yeah, I'll leave that point there. Um, let's see. On this point of international solidarity, I think um, I think this question was answered quite well. But I, I, I did want to add there's there's a lot that we can do, right? We 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 have a lot of power as workers, and, and while we build this, you know, the more that we build it now, uh, the more that we can do in the future, right? To leverage the power of the working class in Canada uh, against the state uh, in its imperialist adventures, uh, typically overseas, right? Uh, examples have already been brought up about solidarity strikes and that type of thing. Uh, but, you know, potentially like on the question, uh, on the question of Palestine, like one of the most common tactics that's, that's promoted uh, in order to fight for, for Palestine is this is a BDS, essentially like a blanket boycott, um, you know, of all Israeli products. And, and I, I really disagree actually, that this is a, a very effective tactic. Uh, there, there was the example of like Italian port workers who actually refused to load arms to be delivered to Israel. And that actually would be a much more, if this was generalized and we could actually get this going on a much larger scale, um, we could effectively you know, prevent Israel uh, from importing arms and from maintaining its, its massive um, you know, apparatus of suppression um, by, by making all, all, all of these arms and all these commodities hot edicts. And that basically means that organized workers do not load or do not move or do not work with uh, any of these products if, if they are hot edicts. Arms going to Israel do not get shipped, do not get loaded by union dock workers. If this was generalized, uh, the, the state of Israel would be, would be really quickly deprived of its, uh, of its massive um, you know, apparatus of repression. Um, and but but further than that, you know, th th those are some things. But but mo most importantly, what we need to do is build the Canadian Revolution. Actually, the Canadian, you know, we need to build a, a revolutionary organization here in Canada so that to overthrow this this the Canadian state. Uh, the Canadian state, uh, it's it, it's a force of reaction uh, on the international scale, right? It's it supports coups that that have taken place in Latin America because of the interests of Canadian mining companies. Uh, and it will, while it's a capitalist state, it will continue to do that. And we need a revolution. Right? We need to overthrow the capitalist state of Canada um, and, and build socialism. And, and a socialist Canada would have absolutely no interest uh, in, in imperialist hawkish adventures overseas. Okay? Um, this question about books. Two, two books that I guess uh, were very important to me in my formative developments. Uh, a political development would be The State and Revolution by Vladimir Lenin and The Revolution Betrayed by Leon Trotsky. Two recommendations, I'll just throw those out. Uh, and the question on state propaganda, what can we do uh, about this in, in authoritarian countries? It's 
it's not just authoritarian countries too. Actually, like Canada very much has its own, you know, propaganda, has its own official messaging and ministry that that comes from the state. You know, Canada is a very nice, peaceful, democratic country. All that bullshit, um, which is not true. What, what we need to do is build the workers' press, frankly, around the world. We need to build our, our own media, um, which is why you should subscribe to Fight Back in the In Defense of Marxism Quarterly Theoretical. Um, but further than that, uh, you know, further than just the workers' press. Um, we need to understand that, like the the state propaganda uh, and and the state machinery, really, like in especially in a period, you know, where where this this revolutionary discontent is coming to the surface, where, where revolution is breaking out, like like the epoch that we're living in right now, we see revolutions uh, and revol and mass movements outbreaking all over the world. Uh, the state really is is not as strong uh, as as it might appear, right? Um, there's a Greek philosopher, I forget the name, says that all that is solid melts into air. Uh, this is what happens, right, to, to the massive security apparatus of the Egyptian state uh, in the revolutions of 2011 and 13. And, and this is what is what is going to continue happening uh, as, as the revolutionary uh, epoch that we live in continues on. Uh, these, these states with, you know, these massive propaganda networks and, and all of this messaging, uh, as consciousness develops, people are realizing it's bullshit, and, and it's melting away into, into thin air. Uh, I imagine a significant amount of people did not celebrate Canada Day this year, and there's a very serious reason for that. Uh, and it's because of the massive leaps in consciousness that have taken place this year. Um, Fair gave a very impressive and impassioned intervention. Um, I, I just wanted to, to add one thing, um, which is, uh, I think I'll end on this point. Which is that uh, a lot of right-wing commentators, bourgeois commentators, you know, Anderson Cooper, CNN, I don't know, whoever's on CBC nowadays, uh, often in, in a mass movement or, or in a period of revolutionary change, they want to deny the role of the mass. They, they want to close their eyes and, and pretend that, you know, these things are the result of a coup or a conspiracy or, you know, something strange, the internet, whatever. Uh, but, but it's bullshit. Actually, the, the, the mass has the, the working class has power you know, large groups of people who are, who are united with you know, similar interests. Of course, you know, they have quite a lot of power. And when they realize it and when they make moves to struggle in their interests, uh, there, there's very little that can actually stop them. And in much of the Arab world today, um, you know, like I said, a lot of the, the antagonisms, you know, none of the, the questions have, that actually began the Arab Spring have been solved. But one key factor, one reason for, for an enormous amount of optimism for the future Arab revolution is, is that the masses, they, they know, they, they don't just think, they know actually that they can overthrow their ruler at, at any given time, right, when they come together. They, they know that from their own experience in, in very recent living memory. And, and that plays a key role in, in their consciousness today. Um, and so, yeah, I'll leave it there actually. Uh, forward to the next Arab revolution and to world revolution. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. 
we can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.